Hi, welcome to Beyond Church. There's a hammer here, I don't know why. <laughs> Sometimes you walk up here and you're like, oh, that's interesting, okay. Um, welcome to Beyond Church. My name is Kim Trowell. For those of you that don't know me, I have the awesome honor and privilege of being on staff here at Beyond. Um, I've been here for uh, almost six years now, so that's been a wild ride. Um, I'm not really used to standing up here. This is not my norm. So um, if this is your first week and you're like, oh, interesting. Yeah, this is not normal. Um, but I do enjoy talking about Jesus. And so that's kind of what landed us here today. And so that's what we'll do. Um, I would like to start out by praying and then we'll get started. Jesus, we love you. I want to honor you this morning with my words and with my thought processes. And so I just ask that your words would come forth. That if there's anything that's not of you, it would fall away. Father, I ask that you would have all the glory this morning. In your name, amen. Okay, so we are at the beginning of a series. Well, I guess we're technically in the middle of a series called Begin with the End, where we have been in our Advent series talking about the life of Jesus, except this year we're going backwards. We started by talking about the resurrection. Last week, Brad talked about his death. And then this week, we'll talk about um, his first miracle, which is found in the book of John. Um, let's see, Let me get this started. Okay, so this is perhaps the most well-known of Jesus' signs in our culture today. So even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard of this story. And you might not be familiar with all the details of it, but you've definitely heard that this is a thing that Christians believe is true. Um, and we're talking about Jesus turning the water into wine. The internet is really full with some pretty fun memes all about this. Uh, you know, maybe Jesus was here. Yeah. And so now we wait. <laughs> this bartender says, I'm cutting you off only water from now on. And Jesus is like, oh, no. You know. So um, this is kind of what our culture thinks about this miracle. They kind of see it as the evidence that Jesus was all about like this party life, right? Um, we have this, we've painted this picture of a buddy Jesus that, um, oh, right, so here you go. Jesus is like, I've got water. I don't have to pay for it. But we've, um, we've turned this into this buddy Jesus idea. He's like a frat boy just waiting to party with his friends on the weekend, his 12 closest buddies. And this is what culture thinks. Um, and I think the church also has maybe a skewed idea of what this sign really means for us as followers of Jesus. There's so much that we can take away from this, though, and I'm really excited to dive a little bit deeper into this this morning. I am not a scholar by any stretch of the imagination. Um, my kids are, like, laughing over here. Yeah, not so much. Um, and I don't know why Brad keeps asking me to speak, but... Since I like talking about Jesus, we'll just continue to do that and hope that the Lord will stretch each of us a little bit in the process. I love this story, and I think it perfectly explains who Jesus is and what he plans to do throughout his ministry. The Gospel of John is the only gospel that records this story, so we will spend most of our time in John chapter 2. If you want a Bible, they're spread out on these tables throughout their seating area, and then it'll also be on the screen behind me. So let's open up to uh, John chapter 2, and we'll be in the first part, which is um, verses 1 through 11. Okay, 
On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Um, it's talking about the third day. This is a continuation of the previous chapter. Really, it could just say two days later, but that's what that means. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Okay, I'm going to do this a little bit differently than Brad does this, and that's okay. <laughs> I have to tell myself that. We're going to go through this section three separate times. So we just read it. It's great. I would like to talk about the cultural significance and then the symbolism and then what it means for us moving forward. So Jesus and his disciples had been invited to this wedding, and at this point, we don't know exactly how many disciples had been following in the previous chapter, there are four disciples, but they've all invited people, so it's possible there's more. But so far, the ones that have been mentioned were Andrew, his brother Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So they're at the wedding with Jesus. They've been invited, and his mother is also there. Because of her knowledge of the wine issue, as well as the way servants heeded her instructions, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that this wedding was either of a relative of Jesus or a very close family friend. First century Jewish weddings were massive celebrations. They would last up to a week long, and the bridegroom was responsible for paying for all of the food and all of the entertainment. As you can imagine, this was expensive and it required careful planning. For whatever reason, the planning wasn't sufficient in this circumstance, and so the wine was gone. It's possible that they couldn't afford the necessary amount and they were hoping it would stretch. We have no idea what the reason is behind this, but wine is a symbol of joy in their culture, and it was necessary for this continued celebration. We know from extra biblical sources from this time period that this kind of situation would have allowed the bride's family to bring a lawsuit against the bridegroom's family for the embarrassment that this caused them to be short on wine and have this shortened celebration. So this would tarnish the family's reputation for the rest of their lives. This isn't just an unfortunate situation. This has the potential to ruin this bridegroom's family and bring great shame on them. And so Mary comes and tells Jesus. Here in um, verses three and four, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. This sounds weird when Jesus replies to his mother, woman, why, do you, why are you talking to me like this? It's, um, this is actually not as harsh as it sounds. We don't have uh, this term in English, 
But it'd be like saying uh, ma'am or my lady, which we don't ever say. But it's a term of respect. It's not generally how someone would have addressed their mother. The NIV translates Jesus' reply as, why do you involve me? But this Hebrew phrase literally means, what to me and you? This is an ancient idiom that asks what they have in common and then in that process then points out their differences. The rhetorical question shows a change in Jesus' relationship with Mary. He was no longer a child bound to carry out all his mother's wishes. He knew his mission and how it would be accomplished. He's declaring his priorities. He is starting his public ministry and he would follow only his father's will from here on out. He repeats several times throughout John's gospel that he does nothing apart from the Father. He's here only to do the Father's will. And so if he acted about this wine shortage, it wouldn't be for any reason apart from bringing glory to the Father. He states that his hour had not yet come. He talks about this hour several times in the gospel of John, and every time he's referring to his suffering and crucifixion. He's isn't ready to publicly announce who he is and, um, and his purpose yet at this time. So this exchange between Mary and Jesus, I think, is really, really profound, and we will revisit this. But as she tells the servants what to do, and she tells them to do whatever he tells them, she's recognizing his authority as Messiah and relinquishing her claim on him as a mother. And so Jesus points the servants to the stone water jars used for ceremonial washing, and tells them to fill them to the brim with water. This is roughly 120 to 180 gallons of water. This is quite a bit. Obviously, this is a large gathering, if that's how much water they needed for everyone to be ceremonial clean. These containers are to be used strictly for cleansing and nothing else. That is their sole purpose. That is the only thing that they are used for. So when Jesus tells the servants to draw the water out and take it to the master of the banquet, this is highly unusual. It says a lot about Mary's position or influence that they obeyed such strange instructions. Okay, so they take this cup, they give it to the master of the ceremony. He's like, wow, this is incredible. Party's saved. Awesome. That's kind of a weird story, right? (laughs) But I think what Jesus is doing is announcing what the kingdom is going to be like through every step of this narrative. The symbolism here is multifaceted. So I think we should talk about that a little bit before we dive into what that means for us today. Because this is Jesus' first sign, he was setting the stage for what was to come. More than helping a friend out of a tight spot or alleviating the stress of someone that he cared about, he was announcing that the kingdom was at hand. Wine is used all through the Old Testament as a symbol of joy and God's abundant provision. Not only is this party out of wine, but Israel itself is also spiritually out of wine. Their spiritual vitality had been drained. Their intimacy with God had been reduced to keeping the letter of the law, and they were all dried up. Enter the creator, the one who was in the beginning and who calls into being what once was without existence. The bridegroom had come for his bride. The jars which held the water that brought cleansing were now filled with the best and the highest quality of wine, the wine that would symbolize the blood of the bridegroom, poured out to bring Israel back to life, to bring us back to life. 
the better sacrifice than what the law offered, cleansing that they could not even fathom. The abundance of God poured out on all of humanity to bring immeasurable joy. And he announced the coming of the kingdom, not to crowds of thousands, not to kings and to priests, but to the lowliest of attendants. The servants who blended into the background that no one would have listened to. Come, see the glory of God revealed. But this is the way the Father all throughout scripture. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. This is not new with Jesus. He's not different from the Father. Since the beginning of time, God has done this very same thing. He has revealed himself over and over to the least likely people. Those without power of position, the lowly, and the humble. They've always been the first to have been offered a seat at his table. When God revealed himself to mankind and created a covenant with them, he showed up to Abram. The God of the universe chose to make a great nation marked by his name, and he chooses the old man that can't have kids. <laughs> it's an interesting choice. And then 400 years later, when those people are now slaves, making bricks with their own hands and killing their sons so they could live another day, God picks an outcast sheep herder wanted for murder with zero public speaking ability to negotiate their way to freedom. Probably not the way I would have done it. And this is just the beginning of the story. Time and time again, the Lord chooses people who are easily overlooked and undervalued. 1,400 years after his glory was revealed in the desert to the Israelites, a group of shepherds in the middle of nowhere are chosen to be witnesses to the most incredible moment in all of human history. God made flesh, announced to the outcasts in the wilderness. The long-awaited Messiah had come, and the only ones who know this are shepherds, his mother, a wild-looking locust-eating prophet, a ragtag group of skeptical men, and a group of servants. The kingdom does not look the way that we expect it to. The Jews had been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come and to set them free. Let's look at Isaiah 55, 1 through 4. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and you labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. The prophets had spoken about him long before he shifted matter in stone pots at a wedding in Cana. We can buy wine without cost to us, although it cost him everything. He quietly heralded the kingdom that had come to earth. Verse 11 says, he revealed his glory and that his disciples believed in him. Yeah, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Awesome, now what? 
What does this mean for us today? Let's take a look at this exchange between Jesus and Mary again. I think there's something significant here that we can take away. She's concerned about this situation. She simply tells Jesus that they have no more wine. So in verses 3 through 5, let's see. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't tell him to get more. She doesn't ask if he can fix it. She just tells him the thing that concerns her. And as she submits to him as her Messiah, she waits in expectation that he will move. I think this might be the perfect model of prayer. She could have asked him to figure it out and to fix it, right? She could have made a list of options for him to choose from that might help just in case he didn't have good ideas of his own. She knows his character. She knows he's able. And she trusts that whatever he decides to do is going to be enough. What a tremendous way to pray. I think many times when we come to God with things that grieve us or issues that need mending, we ask God to move in specific ways and we get discouraged when he doesn't move in ways that we asked. At least I do that. We act as though he can't move until we've given him ideas on how to do things well. Like our ideas are so much better than what he could come up with. You know? Do we not realize that the creator of all can certainly create a solution from nothing? But here's the thing that I think makes us uncomfortable. The Lord rarely works in the ways that we expect. The Jews had been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come and deliver them. They had endured persecution and subjugation to the Roman Empire. The Messiah had promised to set them free. They expected an earthly kingdom to overthrow their enemies. They looked for someone that would deliver them from the hands of their oppressors. The problem was that the deliverance the Lord had in mind was so much greater than what they could possibly think to ask for that they missed it when he came. The kingdom does not look the way we expect it to. While they looked for a warrior to set them free from the bonds of an emperor, Jesus quietly came and set them free from the bonds of sin. Instead of deliverance from the tyranny of government, he delivered them from the tyranny of death. They were so focused on asking for the one that they completely missed when he came and offered the other. Now, I'm not saying it was wrong for them to cry out and ask for physical deliverance. Only that setting their hearts and minds on that blinded them to when he moved in different ways. And the possibility that God wanted to free them from so much more. We're going to turn to Mark chapter 2. Instead of sifting through there, I'm just going to turn around and read this. We're Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Whoops. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of, all, of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This man's friends wanted to see him whole. So they brought him to Jesus, and he made him whole. But not in the way they were expecting, not at first. They sought wholeness. Jesus forgave his sins. What could be more whole than that? None of them could even think to ask for it. They said themselves that none of them had ever seen anything like this, right? And I think that is why I like Mary's request so much. It endows all of her trust and leaves room, for do, leaves room for him to do whatever he sees fit. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's bad to ask God to move in specific ways. The Gospels are filled with very specific requests that Jesus answers. But the challenge I face when I read this account in John chapter 2 is the, to change the way that I pray. The way that I spit, sit in expectation of his answers. He is not short on ideas for ways to intervene in our world. I want to trust that what he's planning is so much better than what I could fathom. I want to submit fully to him as my Messiah and sit in the expectation that how he moves will be better than anything I could possibly imagine. I'm offering all of us a challenge for the rest of Advent. Would you intentionally change the way you pray for the next two weeks? Advent is the purposeful preparation of our hearts as we wait in expectation for the coming of the Messiah, both in the celebration of his birth, but also his promised return. Tell God things that need attention. Tell him what grieves you, what sits heavy on your heart, and wait in expectation for him to move. But ask him to show you how he's intervening in ways that you don't expect or understand. Ask him to open your eyes to the ways he's revealing his glory. I want us to take two or three minutes to pray silently by ourselves and practice this model. The kingdom does not look the way we expect it to. And thank God for that. He is greater than we can imagine. He will move in better ways than we could ever direct. He will reveal his glory, and I certainly don't want to miss it. Let's take two or three minutes to pray silently and maybe just sit in that moment of, I don't like this. I don't like this thing that's happening that I want you to change. I don't like this thing uh, that I see around me. And, um, and let's expect him to step into that. I'll come up when we're done and um, give further instructions. Jim, if you could do some uh, music in the background, it would be great. Lord, we love you. And we want to see your hand move in our world. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to where it is that you're moving and what it is that you're doing so that we could see your glory revealed. 
Father, there's two precious friends I have living with cancer. And I want you to heal them. That's the desire of my heart. But I hand that over to you, Lord, and I ask that your glory would be revealed in each of those situations. And may I see it. And may they see it. Father, as we hand over our expectations to you of what we think you should do and how we think you should get that done, I ask, Lord, that you would give us opportunity to see what you're doing instead. We love you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so at the end of our, um, at the end we always have a discussion. We have three questions. Um, if you're new at this, it's fine. You don't have to say anything, but we encourage you to say something. Um, so these are our questions this morning. I don't remember what they are. I wrote them very late last night. Uh, okay, which of Jesus' miracles resonates most with you? And there's a lot to choose from. Um, has God ever moved in an unexpected way in your life? And how have you seen his glory revealed? We'll give you, I guess, 10 minutes, and, um, and then I'll come up and close us. But feel free to stay as long as you like.